Somewhere in the middle, please, Ola. <laughs> if you haven't already, this is the final part of our four-part series on Jonah. And uh, we've titled this The God Who Wants Us because the truth is God wants us to be in his family, a broken race, a broken humanity. He wants us reconciled to him through the sacrifice of his son Jesus, through that amazing work. God wants us to be in his family. But once we're in, he's not done with us. He wants us to be involved in welcoming others home as well. He's always a God who wants us. And this is something that comes through quite strongly through this whole story of Jonah. The thing is, even when we do become his kids, we go, oh, God's amazing. The thing is, we can, even as Christians, we can be gunning for God. Everything's hunky-dory. But then in a very short space of time, we can be miles away from him. I don't, know if, don't have to put hands up. I don't know if anyone can attest to that, have experienced that. Or maybe you've heard a sermon about being lukewarm, not being on fire, and you've been really challenged. You go, oh, that's me. No, that's it. I want more of God. I'm going to press deeper into him. And then find yourself still going through the same old cycles over and over and over again. We humans can be very fickle, can't we? The truth of this amazing God who wants us should set our hearts on fire. Trouble is, should. It doesn't always, does it? It doesn't always. And there's a lesson about this today in this chapter, chapter 4. And in fact, we've been hearing some of it already. Actually, God's been very kind. He's been setting the context through our time of praised us earlier, what he's been speaking to us, to us through these songs and through the prayers and prophecies in between, prophetic words in between. He's been setting the scene. So uh, we're going to read through uh, chapter 4. We're going to start on the last verse of chapter 3, just to remind us what happened. But just to bring us up to speed, if you're not familiar with the story of Jonah, or you missed previous weeks, Jonah is a prophet who's been asked by God to preach to this evil, depraved city of Nineveh, it's the, kind of the capital city of uh, one of their great enemies, 600 miles away in the northeast. He's been called by God to go and preach a message of repentance to them, this tyrannical metropolis. Effectively, it's turn or burn. Humble yourselves before God, or he will humble you a whole other way. Jonah, however, runs the other way, heading off to a destination that's probably 1,000 miles in the opposite direction and it takes a terrifying storm it takes a monster of the deep as well to wake Jonah up to the fact that God knows better thankfully Jonah does wake up to this and he and he does uh, repent and he does vow and he does he's obedient and he goes to Nineveh and he preaches this message of repentance and there is massive revival in that city from the top down the king makes a decree and everyone from the highest to the lowest, and it even mentions the cattle. <laughs> I still can't get, quite get my head around that bit. From the highest to the lowest, and cattle, repent and turn to God. Christian cows. But what a wonderful place to finish. Wouldn't that be brilliant finale to the story? Praise the Lord. Yeah. Jonah, however, has other ideas. Let's see. Last verse of chapter 3. Let's see what happens. When God saw what they did, Nineveh, saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? I told you this would happen. 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Well, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? I love it. I, another thing I love, besides the cattle in that story, I do love the fact that the Bible doesn't whitewash the major players. It doesn't at all. I mean, the father of the Hebrew nation, Abraham, he was an outright liar. The leader of... Two million of God's people out of slavery. Moses, he was a murderer and a self-doubter. God doesn't whitewash this through his word. The greatest king of Israel, David, he himself, he was an adulterer, a liar and a murderer. And here, this prophet who's preaching leads to 120,000 people turning to God in one single event. He hates that it happened. The Bible is honest about humanity's flaws and each time I suggest it just demonstrates God's radical goodness and mercy and wisdom. So there's two things I want to look at in this passage. We can hear God's word to us today. And let's just, I want to look at the two characters in this chapter. I want to look at Jonah. I want to look at God. Just keep it simple. We're going to look at Jonah. We're going to talk about strops and flip-flops. And then we're going to talk about the God of the big and the God of the little. We're going to turn things around and reframe it and look, it, look at it from God's point of view. So let's look at Jonah, first of all. He's an interesting chap, isn't he? While all of heaven is having a praise party, we need to realise what's going on here. Massive revival, 120,000 people. There's a praise party in heaven wetting the heads of 120,000 baby believers. They're giving it some in heaven. While there's a praise party in heaven, Jonah is having a pity party on his own, outside the city. That's what he's doing. It's quite audacious, really, because Matthew Henry, the great commentator, when he's commenting on this, on this story, he says, in chapter 1, what we see is Jonah fleeing from the face of God. But then here in chapter 4, we see Jonah flying in the face of God. It really is quite something. It's, it's pretty audacious, but actually, when you see what he's saying, it's downright abominable, what's coming out of his heart. The trouble is, we can look at him and wag our fingers and go, oh my goodness, how could he be like that? Thankfully, I'm not like that. 
Trouble is, of course, when we look closer, we realise it can point to each of us nevertheless. It's been said before that each time you point a finger at someone, you don't realise there's three more pointing back at you. And Jesus even talks about, you know, talks about planks and eyes and things like that. He talks about being very aware of your own faults and weaknesses before you ever think about going anywhere near anyone else's. And so we just need to re- reflect that we can shake our heads at Jonah and realise God's got something very important to say to us here. So Jonah, what can we learn? We thought we'd seen Jonah learn his lesson, didn't we? We thought we'd seen him in the belly of the fish going, I was wrong, I'm so sorry, what I vowed I will make good. And he's suddenly obedient. We thought we'd seen it happen, yet here he is again, back where he started. Verse 2, Oh Lord, isn't this what I said when I was in my country? I told you this would happen. But he says, he even spells out who God is. He says, this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God. I knew you're merciful. I knew you're slow to anger and that you're abounding in steadfast love. I knew you're relenting from disaster. I knew you were going to do this and it's wrong. He's saying, I know you're kind and gracious, but my judgment trumps yours. That's quite something to say, isn't it? And then he goes on in verse 3. He turns into a right old drama queen. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Oh, it's all about him. And, then he, and he says that again in verse 8. He says it later on. So then he completes this full circle of his utter strop. And he storms outside the city and has a big sulk. I don't know if you want to admit it. Who likes to strop? You are quick. <laughs> and I'm saying nothing. I was just letting you know. A strop is more than being grumpy, isn't it? A strop is being dramatic, it's being exaggerated and Oscar-worthy. I might as well be dead. Get my golden statue. We want to make it all about us. When we have a strop, we want to make it all about us, don't we? We want to turn it around. We willingly remove ourselves from community. I'm having a strop. I'll be over here. But the trouble is we isolate ourselves, but noticeably. We make sure people know we're going. <laughs> don't we? Don't we? I might as well not be here. Or kids, I wish I was never born. There's a retort to that from the parent, but it's even worse. I won't say it. But it's all the, it's all the colour. No, don't talk to me. I'm having a strop. Don't talk to me. And you get the right up that no one's talking to you. Do we? What's it all about? Jonah is having a massive tantrum. He's throwing his dummy out. Well, it's one thing to have a strop with equally broken human beings, isn't it? Having a strop between us. It's another thing to have a strop with God. I'd have thought. Who did stroppy Joe think he was to question God's actions? Jonah is effectively establishing himself as a mini-God. I know better than you. Let's think about this. This guy, Jonah, he has witnessed God performing some ridiculous miracles. Quelling a storm, directing a giant fish to eat him, keep him alive and spew him up on land. He's witnessed God transforming his huge, great, depraved metropolis. And then even now, he's witnessed God making a plant grow over him in a day. He's witnessed God perish that plant in the morning. And he's witnessed God directing a scorching wind. Jonah's lived through all this and he still digs his heels in. I don't know about you, but 
when I'm contending with someone who can make plants grow and die in 24 hours, someone who can direct the wind, let alone all the other stuff with giant fish and storms and revivals, when I'm contending with someone like that, I'd like to think, I'd realise pretty quickly I'm going to lose this game. But something has got hold of Jonah's heart so tightly. So tightly. And he digs his heels in. And the first thing I've got to ask myself is, actually, am I any different? Do I let things fester? Do I let stuff reside there? Those little splinters, they get infected. And I'm just like, do you know what? I'm still going to hold that against you. Do I do that with God as well as people? Both are wrong, but one's bigger than the other. Again, don't, don't put your hands up, but have you, just ask, have you ever told God you're angry with him? Because what does that tell us about ourselves? Really? Some of us, this is the thing, some of us are more prone to drops than others, okay? Some of us may not be. But that doesn't mean the rest of us get off the hook so easily. Because there's something else going on here. It's more than just a strop. Jonah has responded, not just by having a strop, he's responding by flipping back to where he was. He's flipping from anger to repentance to anger and back again. He's flip-flopping. He's a flip-flop believer. So right at the beginning, he was angry that God should even ask him to go and preach to the Ninevites. So he goes the other way. He eventually repents and is obedient. And then next thing you know, he's angry that it still happened. Told you this would happen. He's flip-flopping. And flip-flop Christianity, actually, I've got to suggest, is a common blind spot for most, if not all of us. It's the danger to us all of blowing hot and cold when it comes to walking with God, when it comes to being on mission, when it comes to prayer life, to integrity, to faithfulness and so on. When Jesus in the first three Gospels talks about the parable of the sower, we're all familiar with the story, and he describes about the sower sowing seed on different types of soil. And he explains, Jesus says that not all seed of the good news will have lasting fruit in people. The problem is not in the seed, the problem is in the soil it lands on. And so, Sometimes the seed will land on good soil. The message of Jesus will land on good soil in someone's heart and it, it, bears, it, it gets deep roots and it bears masses of fruit. It's a good thing. But sometimes it lands on rocky soil or thorny soil or exposed patches of soil as Jesus talks about. And it means the good news of what he's done for us gets snatched away by distractions and opposing desires and difficulties in life and the devil as well gets snatched away and so the gospel doesn't get a chance to penetrate deep into the heart and bring lasting change the thing is that isn't just about being saved in the first place it still applies to us as Christians in our Christian life what is the soil in my heart like every time I hear the gospel am I indifferent to it now am I more bothered about what's on TV tonight distractions is the devil getting a grip on something am I letting something fester it still applies to us. What is the soil of my heart? Whenever the seed of the good news, a new facet that we're learning, you're reading something in the Bible for the first time, or you hear something a new way, does it affect you? Does it challenge you? Does it penetrate and take deep, make deep roots? Or does it just get blown away or removed by distractions and desires and so on? See, we can convince ourselves we've got it, and we can convince ourselves we're on fire, but sometimes we actually have to ask ourselves, am I really? Am I really? When the going gets tough, is that a danger zone for you to walk away from God? That's it, it's too tough, I can't do this anymore, I'm giving up. Or alternatively, when life is cruising, when life is comfortable, 
Is that a danger zone for you to drift away from God? Both are just as much of a danger. It's not one or the other. Some of us are more prone to one or the other. But it can be either. Flip-flop Christianity. The trouble is Nineveh themselves. If you look at, and John alluded to this last week, you mentioned this last week, if you look at the book of Nahum, two, two books later after Jonah, you find out within a hundred years, Nineveh are back where they started. They flip back. Flip-flop. Within a life cycle or two, that city, all that repentance is dust in the wind. It's really sad. Such a sad state of affairs. It's such an utter dismissal of God's undeserved mercy and grace. It really is. Very quickly. And it can happen to any of us in our own lives, in our own walks. It doesn't matter how much God is using you right now. It doesn't matter how spiritual a person looks. I've seen folk leaving, leading small groups or uh, meetings or even leading churches one moment and then in a very short space of time they are miles away from Jesus and his church. But the thing is it doesn't happen overnight. It's been, there's something been festering away. Even an affair, in a marriage, that starts a long time before anything happens. There's something festering. Jonah, <laughs> Jonah on paper was a remarkable evangelist. 120,000 people in one hit. Billy Graham would give his right arm for that, wouldn't he? While all these turnarounds can seem out of the blue, it actually isn't an overnight process. There's something there. So storming off from church, storming off from God, saying, I've had enough, saying, I'm angry with you, you didn't give me what I want, etc. It says a lot more about the individual than it does about the situation at stake. While these are big things, but we can also flip-flop in small ways as well. We can come back from a conference on fire. Yes, God's amazing. Look what he's doing. Listen to those prophecies. Fortnight later, prayer life's a trickle and distractions are at a high volume. I can put my hand up to that. I've done that. We can receive an answer to prayer. And God's the best thing since sliced bread. Yes, he answered my prayer. And then suddenly when we don't get what we want, we can give up can be in danger of that. Or we can repent and we can repent and promise we'll never do something again and we can give our lives to him and again and convince ourselves we're sold out for him again. We're running after his calling for us and yet find ourselves back where we started and in a whole other mess very, very quickly. We can go around in these circles, can't we? Either way, we can prove we didn't really learn in the first place. Or we can even just be mature Christians who are challenged regarding being on mission and do something about it, but then revert back to being more bothered about the workings of church than the fact that thousands around us don't know Jesus. We can all do it. We can all do it. Flip-flop Christianity. The truth is, and here's the thing, all of us are human, and we can't make ourselves a better person. Saved and unsaved. You can't make yourself a better person. While there's room for learning how to be more reflective, there's room for learning how to be more vulnerable and honest, there's room for learning how to be accountable. Those are all good things. I'm not dismissing those at all, but they're not the answer. Because we can all inevitably, at some point, we can go cold, we can trip up, we can storm off, or tell God he's wrong. We're humans, and God knows that. And so what we can do is fix our eyes on the great rescuer, and let him do the talking. So that's enough of Jonah. What I want to do is compare him with God in this story. So just, even just comparing the two for a moment. Jonah is caught up in himself and he's demanding the attention. Yeah? 
God is caught up in others and he's demanding celebration. Radically different. Complete opposite. Jonah is selfish. God is selflessly compassionate. It's amazing. In the midst of this whole stropping and flip-flopping is a, a God who, on one end of the scale, he has every right to wipe out Nineveh in its entirety. And yet he doesn't. We have to recognize that this God isn't a watered-down God. Proverbs 16 verse 5 says that he despises the proud. He hates the arrogant, the haughty. And most of us at some point have been liable to do, to do it. Does he love, does he love, yeah, was it um, hate the sin and love the sinner? Actually, he hates the sinner when it's pride in the heart. The Bible does say that. We do have to recognize this scary God we're dealing with. We can't minimize him. And yet his first reaction, is his first choice, his pro- first preference is mercy and grace and favor and compassion because of what he's done through his son Jesus. And he has every right to wipe out Nineveh, but he doesn't. He turns a despotic king into a devoted worshipper. It's remarkable. He turns an evil city into a megachurch in an instant. It's amazing. So that's the global aspect, but on a more smaller aspect, on the other hand, the other end of the scale, we have a God here who has every right to leave Jonah outside the city and having his pity party. He's every right to go, you know what, I'm done with him. I've used him. Moving on. But he doesn't. Instead, he comes to him. He's willing to challenge him, but with tenderness too. It's a beautiful mix. He doesn't pander to, to Jonah. He's willing to confront his sin. But instead of punishing him, rather he pursues him like a father to a child. It's amazing. He doesn't have to. He chooses to. The parenting here, while at no point letting Jonah off the hook, is beautiful. Stunning. And so God uses this plant, this miraculous moment with this plant, to build it up, you know, to raise it up over Jonah, to give him shade, then to pull it down and send this wind just to prove a point, just to illustrate both his power and his provision. And he does this to press a point home. Basically, Jonah, who do you think you're dealing with here? Reality check. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Job. Sure, many of you have read it. You may not have done, but in there, basically, huge, great calamities um, occur to to Job, and there is a reason behind it. We find it at the beginning of the story, but huge, great, awful calamities, utter tragedy occurs to Job, and happens to Job, and and his friends, supposedly helpful, rally round and give their advice. And there's lots of discussion with Job and his three friends, and they talk a load of twaddle. They really do. God is so patient; He gives them 37 chapters to get on with it. And then eventually, chapter 38, he turns up. And God goes, were you there when I created everything? Do you realize who you're dealing with? Reality check. And it's the same what God's doing here with Jonah. He could have said, you know what, Jonah, I'm done with you. I've got 120,000 new kids to feed. I've got a job, I've got work to do. But in his goodness, he comes to Jonah for some one-to-one. It's so kind. God wanted the Ninevites to be welcomed into his family, but he still wants Jonah to be a part of the celebrations too. He gives Jonah his time. Look how he does it. Verse 4, and he repeats this in verse 9 as well. Verse 4, the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? He just turns it back on him. He's challenging, but he's quite tender, quite careful. He goes, this anger thing, how's it working out for you? He is. And God's response to Jonah is exactly the same 
as his response to Nineveh's evil. It's mercy and compassion. In this small story of Jonah, it's two pages in our Bibles, isn't it? It's tiny. In this small story, we see God's heart exposed at both the macroscopic, the global level, but also the microscopic, the personal level. And that is something that has never changed. That's always been his heart. He loves the global and the personal. He's interested and active in both. See, for example, Jesus, the Bible tells us, Jesus died for a broken world. It's a corporate thing for any who will receive him to be invited in and come back home. Jesus died for a broken world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Jesus died for a broken world, global. But also, when you're a believer and you start digging into the book of Revelation, you discover that your name, your name was written in the book of life before the foundations of the earth were put in place. Private, personal, individual, microscopic. Global God, personal God. That's what we see here. Jesus himself, he spoke of going after the one lost sheep when the 99 are safe. It's global and personal. He came to rescue a broken human race. Never think it's about Jesus and me. You're part of something bigger. This is a corporate thing. And yet, Jesus also gave time to the doubter. He gave time to the sick woman. He gave time to the outsider. He gave time to the outcast and so on. And even today, he appears in dreams to Muslims in closed countries where we can't get to. Global and personal. Just get a grasp of how amazing this God is. He's the God of the big and he's the God of the little. Doesn't need to be, doesn't have to be, but he wants to. And that's the key. As believers, we need to expect that as we gaze upon this God more and more, we too acquire his heart for, for our welfare and the world around us too. The key to avoiding flip-flop Christianity and just keeping our eyes fixed on him. Keep gazing on him. The more you see who he is, the more you learn who he is, just let that penetrate. Let the soil be good, turned over soil. Just let those seeds just get in deep and let them penetrate and get a grip on you. One of my favourite people of history is a man called Abraham Kuyper. He was a Dutch Prime Minister just over 100 years ago. I wish he was our PM. Listen to what he says. This is his fam- it's quite a famous quote. This is what he says. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. I'll say that again. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, he does not cry, mine. That square inch, that's mine. That one, that's mine. That one, that's mine. He's the God of the global and the God of the personal as well. And so that means that affects how I fill my tax return in, but it also affects how I pray for my town. It affects how I talk about other people behind their backs and it also, talk, it also affects how I pray for those in government. It's both, isn't it? It affects how I respect those I don't agree with and it also affects how I love those that are unlike me. It affects how I treat my wife and daughter and it also affects how I yearn for friends and strangers to know Jesus. It should affect me and if it doesn't, I've got something wrong and my soil is the problem, not the seed. Just looking at Jonah's heart and thinking, I just don't want to be that person. I know I'm in danger of being that person. Lord, help me to not be that person. Let it penetrate deep. God's sovereignty is such that he commands 
the rise and fall of plant and city alike. And yet his heart will always choose mercy over judgment. As his people, do we embrace the same, is the question. Do we embrace the same? Do, we, do our actions actually demonstrate that? We can give it all that, can't we? But our actions will spread the message. The amazing thing about this story is it actually ends on a cliffhanger. Last word being cattle. It ends on a cliffhanger. We, we don't discover Jonah's response. The Bible doesn't tell us what Jonah did. Sorry, I'm wrong, and he flips back to obedience. Or if he tells God where he can put it and runs away. I don't know. We don't know. The point of that, I suggest, is he's asking you and me. What about you? What about you? So just as a close, just, let's just be honest with ourselves. Just, are you safe in the fold? Are you safe in the fold being fed and protected and learning to grow in community? Or are you on the outside, lost and or having a strop because of something that happened that you can't reconcile, because of something you're holding against God or holding up against other people you've not talked to God about? Are you on the outside having a strop? Are you lost? Either way, he wants you. If you're on the outside, he wants you. If you're on the inside, he wants you to be involved in the celebrations and getting involved in mission. He's the God who wants us. So, Christian, are you a stroppy Joe or a flip-flop Christian? Do you make it about you or do you make it about him? Not all, we're not always necessarily all, all of one of those all the time, but we can be danger, in danger, can't we? Just know that as his kid, you already have his attention. So listen to his heartbeat and let that heartbeat beat within you. Do you blow hot and cold, either when life's tough or when life's easy? Just remember that as his child, he wants you involved in the family business. Just enjoy that. It's not a duty. It's something to enjoy. It's a privilege. And if you're someone who doesn't know Jesus, if you're someone who doesn't believe all this and you're still getting your head around, I suggest you're here because you're searching. If you're not sure... Just ask yourself, are you outside the party? Are you alone with your own thoughts and judgments? Because effectively you are. He wants you. He wants you. He sacrificed of himself to bring you home. And while he is dealing with things on a global scale, he has enough time for you to deal with you one-to-one -one as well. Speak to him. Speak to him. Don't walk away from here thinking it's something nice to think about. This is, this is, we're talking about eternity here. We're talking about life and death. We're talking about the big stuff. And he wants you. Let me just pray. Father God, we just, in reverent awe this morning, we've heard you speak to us about your immensity your power, your holiness, but also your mercy and your grace and your kindness. You are a remarkable God, unlike any other. And Lord, we just want to respect that. We want to honour that. We want to thank you for that. We want to celebrate that.
Lord, if any of us here need talking to, if we're outside the city and you want to have a word with us, will you do that? Even right now, just prompt us where we need to be prompted. If we're liable to blow hot and cold quickly, if we're liable to flip-flop, if we're liable to have strops, if we're liable to hold grudges, if we're liable to tell you you're wrong, if we're liable to think we know better, speak to us and challenge us, we pray. Even right now, the Holy Spirit, just in your kind grace, will you just speak to us? But also, will you give us the strength to respond? To not be lazy or to be dismissive, but to respond to your Father's heart over us. Help us to recognize 24-7 the fact that you want us and you want others. Help us to be on mission with you. Help us to be responsive, to not be like Jonah. When you ask us to speak up, will we do so? When you ask us to step out, will we do so? Give us the strength. We are fickle humans and we need your help. So Holy God, will you just come in all your good kindness as you have promised and help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.